Jerry O'Hanlon, you're an Irish Jesuit theologian and you've just written a book on Pope Francis called The Quiet Revolution. It's not really a biography, more I think you're looking at what Pope Francis is trying to do in terms of the church. So is he trying to bring about a revolution, are you saying? Yeah, I'm saying that um, he has an idea of church, which is taken very much from the Second Vatican Council, actually, which, if it's pushed through, and he's trying in different ways to see that it is implemented, reverses about a thousand years of the way the church has been structured. So if you look at people like John O'Malley, the um, Jesuit historian from North America, his analysis would be, in that fine book he wrote about the Second Vatican Council, that more and more from the 11th century on, the church became centralised and it, the authority lines became very vertical. Whereas in the first thousand years, it was much more a case of local churches having a very good degree of autonomy, but being somehow in communion with Rome. And during that period, a lot of people wouldn't have known who the Pope was. Obviously, communications have changed, so that's not possible anymore. We wouldn't want to return to that. But the Pope was seen very much as in service of the unity of the wider church. And as early as the 3rd and 4th centuries, various questions were passed on, which couldn't be resolved at local level. But increasingly, over the second millennium, if you like, that position was reversed so that local churches didn't use their own autonomy, but deferred to Rome too quickly. I mean, a very good example of it in recent times in in Ireland and in English-speaking countries was the adoption of the new liturgy in English, which basically was something that was imposed from the Vatican, much against the desires of many people in the local communities. But the communities, for whatever reason, bishops' conferences and so on, didn't feel about it strongly enough to represent Rome. And that was part of a habit that had developed over many, many centuries and was deeply embedded, particularly in the Irish church. So they deferred all the time to, to Rome. Now, the Pope is trying to reverse that and to give more autonomy at local level. And how is that working? Because it would seem that if you're going to do that, the people that you appoint are also important in terms of who they are. Has there been indications that Pope Francis has changed in terms of who he appoints? The appointment of bishops is very important. What's as important is that in this new revolutionary way of looking at church. I say revolution in the sense that it's reverting to something uh, earlier on in the church, but it hasn't been so for the last uh, thousand years. The role of the laity is seen as absolutely crucial. So, for example, when Francis talks about infallibility, he never refers to the Pope or the bishops. It's the laity together have the charism of infallibility. So you're talking there about a way of understanding the search for truth and then governance in the church which has three components. We've we've been dealing all the time with one, really, bishops and pope, and really pope when it comes down to it. Now he's saying it's very important to theologians as part of that and to listen carefully to it. But most important of all, it's important to have what he calls the sense of the faithful, which was very much part of Vatican II as well. And he's quite a sophisticated way of trying to discover what the sense of the faithful is. It's not necessarily majority public opinion or what the polls are showing. So that's where his whole background as a Jesuit comes in. He's very confident that that can be discerned. And so for a long time, we as Jesuits used discernment in terms of individual, personal discernment in terms of our journey with God as individuals. But Ignatius did have communal discernment as well. That was how he decided to carry on with the Nine Companions to found the society. And so increasingly discernment has been broadened out to include this more 
social communal element. And so you'll find the Pope testing things in the, in the public arena. For example, in the Synod on the Family, which he had over two years, two succeeding years, there was consultation beforehand. Then there was the first phase of the Synod. The waters were tested. They pushed the boat out a little on the issue of gay Christians, gay Catholics, found that it wasn't very well received, particularly in, say, African countries. They pushed the boat out a bit as well on the divorced and remarried access to communion. They found there was a more positive, if not far from unanimous, response to that. Then there was more consultation the following year, and then a document came out, a synod document, but then the papal exhortation afterwards, which in a well-known but very small footnote opened the door to a change in the church's understanding of its treatment of divorced and remarried people in communion. And that's an example of this kind of what he calls synodal process. Synodal goes back to the word of Jesus walking along the road with his disciples and interacting with them. And it's a kind of teaching and learning. And he's very keen that... We do that with one another and also with wider society, that there are things in wider society that we can learn from. There are things in our sister churches, the Protestant churches, the Orthodox churches, that we can learn from. We've also things to teach. So it's not just an accommodation to the surrounding culture. He is absolutely vitriolically opposed to the brand of capitalism, for example, and to the degradation of the planet. And he's very, very keen to call that out. But there are other things in terms of human rights and ways of organising a group which he thinks we can learn from society and from other churches. And this is one of them where we need to be more participative and inclusive in the way that we form teaching and in the way that we govern. I think people listening to this, though, might think, well, at the start... People were full of hope because he did say things regarding the gay community. Who am I to Mm -hmm. judge? Mm -hmm. Yes, there is in Amoris Laetitia that very clear footnote which would appear Mm -hmm. to leave it open for divorced and remarried Mm -hmm. people to have communion Mm -hmm. in certain circumstances. And yet, on the ground here, the World Meeting of Families got into serious trouble over the removal of, I mean, removing pictures, not even Mm -hmm. anything dramatic happening. And that in terms of the women's issue, we have Mary McAleese criticising the Pope and saying nothing has shifted. And in a way, people are looking and saying, well, maybe is it just more of same? There really isn't a revolution here. No, and I think I understand where people are coming at when when they voice that kind of um, frustration, if you like. I think he's right, though, in what he says. He said at the start, this is not a quick fix kind of thing. So he has that thing in the joy of the gospel. One of the four principles of change is time is greater than space. What he means by that is when you unpack it, that it's more important to put in processes that will lead to change rather than looking for quick results. I think if he went, for example, supposing there's no evidence to think that he would want the ordination of women, for example, as Mary McAleese would. He says, I'm a son of the church and I accept this, that and the other. But if he went for that, there'd be massive schism at the moment. Instead, what he's doing is preparing a culture and an atmosphere in the church where these things can be debated openly and fearlessly. And when the time is ripe, progress can be made. I liken it to something that goes on in a family. There are certain issues in all families which are taboo issues almost. And then gradually, perhaps somebody breaks through and they learn how to speak. And it's a slow process. And so just at the moment, the family at the church in terms of the gay issue showed that it wasn't quite ready But I don't underestimate the fact that it was raised in the way it was. That has an effect. And over time, 
that will have an effect. But can I just mm. point out to you there, for example, you say that he's encouraging debate and discussion, mm-hmm. yet it has been reaffirmed that what John Paul II said, that the debate was closed just very recently, has been reaffirmed from Rome that the debate on women priests is still closed and that mm-hmm. that still stands. People like Tony Flannery and Jared Conlon here who have been silenced have been given no indication that there is an openness for them mm-hmm. to talk or that what they have done has been now rescinded and it's all happy in the garden. Former President Mary McAleese, whom we've referred to, wrote a letter to the Pope. He didn't reply. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give a sense of that openness and dialogue mm-hmm. coming through. The first two instances you mentioned um, don't directly depend on the Pope. Obviously, he could intervene. What the CDF said in the way that it said it has been resisted by a lot of people and in fact the debate is going on So, and the Pope has, has not tried to stop that. With regard to Tony Flannery, Gerard Maloney and there are two or three others, I think that's very, very regrettable that they're just caught in the in, in the in-between times, if you like. It's very hard to get departments of any government, if you like, or and particularly government of the church to admit that they got things wrong and so they're caught in a kind of limbo situation and everything should be done, I think, to give voice to Tony and I, I know Tony personally. And uh, I think with, with regard to Mary McAleese and the kind of comments that she's making, I think a lot of those comments are very fair. But I would think that there's an impatience there to get quick results that would backfire. I really think that I'd have faith in the... I'm not saying by any means, by the way, that he gets everything right. I think he's got things badly wrong on occasions. And ironically enough, it's very regrettable, for example, in the Chilean situation that... He was misdirected, if you like, and he was so strong in rejecting the stories of of those younger people. Why do you think he did that? That was unusual, that he was so defiant, given the backlog of history of Mm. child sexual abuse Mm. and clerical sexual abuse. Mm. uh, It was Mm. a really off-key judgment on mm-hmm. his part. It was, and uh, but I think, the, and I, I don't know why, I don't know who was briefing him and why he trusted them rather than other. For me, the big thing to come out of it was that very quickly when he realised that he got it wrong, he was absolutely repentant in a very striking kind of way. I mean, for a public figure like that to say, sorry, and I got it grievously wrong and I... I'm very sorry for the harm I caused and it's a serious sin is what he said. And that actually ties in for me with the sort of person he is because when he was asked in his first ever interview with the Jesuit magazines, who is Jorge Bergoglio? As well as saying he was astute and he was a little naive and so on, he said, I'm a sinner. And he was able to say in what sense. It wasn't just a pious throwaway word. He was saying, I've been too authoritarian, too quick to make decisions. And in this case, he showed that he was able to admit that he was a sinner in a very concrete, not in a general sense. We all say we're sinners Mm, and so on. But to admit in public that you got things so badly, for me, it was comforting and encouraging that he had the courage to admit that. I think that's an interesting point because I was going to say that to you, that if you're a pope who is trying to bring in a more collaborative way of working Mm -hmm. and trying to encourage local parishes on the ground Mm -hmm. under their bishops to start Mm -hmm. really appropriating the tradition and their faith in the light of Mm -hmm. the sign of the times and working Mm -hmm. on that. It's very hard then to then point a finger or to then come in as the authoritarian figure and say, Mm -hmm. even to the people who are opposing you, stop it. And I'm telling you, do this. Mm -hmm. 
So he's kind of caught both ways, isn't he? He is caught both ways. And that's why this move, if you like, towards a more synodal church is really a very difficult one. It's it's messy. The Protestants have tried it. The Orthodox have tried it. The Orthodox have ended up being too nationalistic. There's the Greek church, there's the Roman church. The Protestants have ended up tending to be too fragmented. Our position has been we've been too monarchical and too monochrome. And so the words of uh, Ladislaus Orsi are good, I think, there. He talks about a better balance of vital forces. This is the canon lawyer from the In the United States, yeah. And one of the vital forces will be the papacy, will continue to be the papacy. But as John Paul II himself said in 1995 in that document that they may be one, he asked... Protestants, Orthodox and Catholics to help him re-envisage the papacy to become a service of unity to all Christians because he was aware, as Paul VI was before him, that as it's been operating, the papacy has been the major obstacle to Christian unity. But it is true exactly what you're saying, that balance between a centralised, strong authority, and that's the kind of vector, that's the pole that has been strongest in the Catholic Church, and how you move to balancing that with more local autonomy is quite a difficult one. And what pleases me about the, the, the Pope there is that he's not an organisational theorist, if you like. You won't find a very well-defined organogram where he works out on a chart what the organisation is going to look like. His instinct is that the present situation isn't fit for practice and he's very much in tune with Vatican II on that. He's conscious that as you move towards something new it's messy. There'll be uncertainties, there'll be mistakes but he's very clear both in personal life and in social life that questioning doubts, uncertainties, messiness are part of life and better to make mistakes. And he's a huge trust in the Holy Spirit leading us as long as we're open and we're open to one another and able to discuss these things. So that encourages me because if you think back to the early church, it was founded on conflict. The whole thing in the early decades of the church was how does this new community relate to Judaism and how does it relate to the Gentile pagan world around and one of the major figures there, we call him now, it's a kind of an anachronistic way of talking, the first Pope, Peter, they wouldn't have seen him in that kind of way. They would have seen a certain primacy, all right. He came up with the wrong answers on that. And it was Paul. And, and all that was settled, not by a Pope, it was settled at the Council of Jerusalem. And similarly, as you, as you well known, our listeners will know, if you move into the uh, fourth century, you think of those huge debates about who Jesus Christ was exactly. And they came to some kind of resolution in the 320s of the Council of Nicaea. And then there was 50 years afterwards of controversy. And as Cardinal Newman says, looking back on that period, it was the laity got it right, not the bishops. But the thing is, if you come to today hmm. and you're talking about the Pope may have these aspirations and this is a revolution mm-hmm. he's trying to enforce, but you can't unless your bishops and people go with you. And I, I would hope that this is why I've been appealing for a long time for the leadership in the Catholic Church, the bishops. That's why I think they are important to move towards this different model of church because it is happening elsewhere. I mean, in, in Bordeaux, for example, they're just in the process of a two year synod. They've had a long process of toing and froing. Many German dioceses have it. In the Amazon basin,
Tyson, they're having this synod where the whole issue of an official ministry for women with decision-making and the whole issue of married priests is on the agenda. In Australia, they're having a national synod, probably as a result of the child sexual abuse, but to cover a lot more than that. Limerick held a synod, they had preparations for it. The bishop was advised that certain issues were not talkable about by his canon lawyers, so, for example, the uh, ordination of women. Other people said you cannot bring people together if you're looking for the sense of the faithful and deny a hearing to what are the deepest concerns. And so what he did was, it was a clever move in my uh, book, he finished the synod formally on the Sunday at lunchtime and then he had a whole open session in the Sunday afternoon and he guaranteed to everybody that the whole proceedings would go to Rome. So there are creative ways around this. If if a bishop understands what the Pope is saying, he will want to bring people together in this more open, consultative, ultimately leading to decision kind of way. Do you think they do understand here in Ireland? That's why I've called it the quiet revolution in a way. It's quiet because I, I think it'll take a long time, a generation at least, and the same man, Lalas Lossorsi, is always talking about that this is not going to be a quick fix. But it's also quiet because I don't think the bishops have cottoned onto it yet, uh, for the most part. Some have, but I've had informal conversations with several of the senior members and they would say things like, we don't have the infrastructure yet for this. But I was part of a group back in the 1990s with the late Kieran Kennedy, who was director of the ESRI, and we suggested this kind of thing because it's very much in line with, with Vatican II. It's not that Pope Francis has thought this up out of the skies himself. And we were told by Archbishop Des Connell in Dublin at the time that it was too early, the infrastructure wasn't in place. So you're talking 30 years on now and they're still saying that. I think once people got the signal that this was the way the church was going, that would galvanise action. It has happened in lots of, there have been listening exercises, there are active parish councils, but it's too discretionary at the moment. And if one parish priest moves off, another priest moves in, the canon law is against the parish council being anything more than at the discretion of the parish priest. That has to be changed. And is that not the fear also with the Pope, that with all due respect, and he looks really healthy, but he's in his 80s now, and so little has really been laid down, as you've outlined, that when he goes, it's very easy for the civil service, as we know, reverts Mm. to type, and it's all been just a bottle of smoke, and that that Mm. heavy weight, of which some people, to be fair, would say tradition, Mm-hmm. is what will survive and what mm-hmm. should survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously there'll be disagreement and some people will feel that. And, and I know a lot of people, you hear stories about Rome saying people keeping their head down until the present Pope passes and then we can go back to, to the way things were. I think there are already significant indications of change. I think even in a much more low-profile way, it's never reported in the Irish media so much, there have been women appointed to senior positions within the Vatican, even in the, in the CDF. I think the groundwork is there and I think people are building on it. But I do think it does invite and challenge bishops to show leadership on that. And if they're not showing it, it invites, and this is heroic, I think, to, to ask people to do this because they're so frustrated. It invites lay people to really be insistent in the fact that this is the way the Pope is calling us. And to repeat that, ad nauseum to their bishops and their priests at any particular time. I mean, it's very ironic to me that up to quite recently, anything the Pope said in Rome was automatically taken up by our bishops and handed out to us. Now the Pope is saying something very different, including about his own role and the role of bishops, 
And there's a certain lack of, I don't know, is it will or imagination to see what is being said. So the Irish bishops, for example, went to Rome for their six-yearly ad limina visit. They came back very enthused. And the point of the enthusiasm was that they didn't get a lecture, they didn't get teaching, they got a sitting around in a table and asking, how do you find your diocese and so on. They were listened to and then they were given a few words of encouragement. Yet when they came back here and they were asked, were they going to do this with the Irish church? They said, no, there's enough talking. We've got a message now. We can give it to you. People, this culture doesn't accept messages like that. They have to be part of the discussion. They have to buy in when they have felt that their voice is being heard. And particularly on issues of um, sexuality and gender, which... Because many. they're making their voices heard anyway because they're mm. voting on it in, a, in the secular state and, and it's not Catholic Church teaching they're following. Exactly, yeah, it's, it's not. And particularly, I suppose, among younger people. I mean, as an example of... Well, the, in the referendum, it was the whole... Right yes, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I agree with you. But I wanted to make a point about younger people and insist that younger people in particular are drifting away from the church and the church finds it very hard to find a language to connect with them. Interestingly, in France, and if you can imagine Knock... Lourdes is obviously the big shrine there. And there is a synod in Rome next October on young people and vocation of young people and decision making and so on. We very rarely hear anything about it in Ireland. French hierarchy got a group together led by a religious sister and they organised a series of listening exercises with groups of eight to 10 young people at any particular time between the ages of 18 to 35. They've done that systematically over a period of about 10 months. They've been with groups now of up to three and a half thousand young people and all that's going to Rome. Now that's the way the church should work and that requires a bit of imagination as well as organisation and you're not going to get young people to be part of something that doesn't speak their language, that isn't interested in hearing what they have to say, what they feel. And I think, really, there are little pockets of very successful apostolates with young people in Ireland, but they're very isolated and they need the encouragement of telling stories with one another and getting this heard at the highest level. There are grounds for change if this different way of organising the church is implemented. And what we need to be doing is trying to persuade our own to take this on board. And I don't think... A papal visit, for example, with the good feeling that it would probably generate despite the uh, resistances and protests that will happen as well. I don't think that's a cure-all by any means. I was very struck when Ireland won the Grand Slam and uh, Joe Schmidt was interviewed in London on the way back from Twickenham by Marion Finucane. And she said, did the emotion generated by Eddie Jones disparaging the Irish team, did that help towards the performance that you gave? He said, not at all. We're way past that. And he quoted Aristotle. And he said, um, as the Greek philosopher Aristotle said, what we're trying to do to build in is habits of excellence that are stronger than the emotional ups and downs. And I think that's what the Pope means when he says time is greater than space. And reform comes from processes that are put in place and from the peripheries, not the central. And so if we can begin to build up that kind of church, that's a great sign of hope for lasting reform. And I would hope that that's the kind of thing that comes out of this visit, a commitment to sharing his vision, his ecclesial vision, not just kind of some good feeling that might last for two, three, four weeks, a month, and it will pass. 
And finally, it, it is important to point out that there are many people who would see this Pope, particularly in America, they've actually called him the Antichrist. And we're talking about Catholics mm-hmm. in the alt-right who mm-hmm. really, it must be pointed out, are almost on the verge of schism anyway mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. So it's not an easy job. Mm-hmm. No, it's not an easy job. Uh, there's an Italian journalist who uh, wrote this book called The Sheep Among the Wolves. And there is this strong opposition, particularly in the United States and Italy. Italy, because of the links with the mafia and so on, so he's trying to do something about the financial situation of the Vatican. In the United States, because of the culture wars and particular issues around uh, sexuality and gender. But curiously enough, I, I think that there's less to fear from that. There may be some schism down the line, which would be regrettable, but maybe the price one pays. There's less to fear from that outright opposition, which at least you can see, and he's very comfortable with calling that and facing it and so on, than the, a lot of people in the middle, I'm talking about bishops now, who seemingly are apathetic to the message that's being given or who are passively aggressive towards it. It's hard to know what's going on there. And that needs to be called out. Why aren't the Irish bishops doing what he says? He's inviting them to become a more collegial, synodal church, to set up structures where lay people are heard, where there's uh, a more equal sharing of power. Why is that not happening? And they can say they're busy with 101 other kinds of things. That would worry me more than the outright uh, opposition. And I'd love our bishops to be called into that space where they don't see meeting with people as a waste of time or as another talking shop. Of course, it's hard work, but governments have been doing this for a long time. And the church is offering some kind of a way that isn't just populism, but isn't monarchy either. And I think it's a sign of great hope. And it would be wonderful if our bishops could buy into that and give the kind of leadership which I think people are calling for. Because very often you hear, including from the CDF in Rome, that people are confused by this or that they're distressed by that. In my experience, that's not so. I think the lay people are far ahead on lots of these issues and they're not distressed or confused. They know quite well what they think. And so the bishops needn't be afraid of that. And the Pope himself has said, sometimes a bishop is ahead of his flock, sometimes he walks alongside and sometimes he's behind and has to realise that people have a gift of prophecy and he does well to follow them.